Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm thrilled to welcome two executives from C4 Therapeutics, Adam Crystal, the Chief Medical Officer, and Stu Fisher, the Chief Scientific Officer. Thanks, Adam and Stu, for joining us today. Thank you. Adam, we'll, we'll start with you and would love to just start off and learn about your career journey and background and how you got to where you are today. So first, thanks for having me. My name is Adam Crystal. I am an MD-PhD medical oncologist. I joined C4 Therapeutics as the chief medical officer about two years ago. And my path to getting there was interesting for me, probably not all that atypical. Before joining, I had been at Novartis in Cambridge for about five years, overseeing some of the early development oncology programs. And that was really my first foray into industry. Before that, I had been an academic oncologist, really based at Mass General for residency, and then the Farber and Mass General for fellowship, and then a postdoc. And I was an early career academic oncologist in the lab and decided that that wasn't the right fit for me. So I started exploring other opportunities outside of lab-based academia and looked at clinical academics, looked at private practice oncology, and looked at this large black box called industry and realized that drug development might be a really nice place for me, a really nice fit. And so once I discovered that there was something called early development and something called late development, I realized that early development was the right thing for me and that I happened to live in Cambridge, which was a great place to do that kicked some tires, had some wonderful discussions with people in the area and wound up going to Novartis, which was really a dream job for me for five years. After five years, C4 reached out to me, said, we're working on these molecules. We call them degraders. We'd like to put them in the clinic soon, and we'd like you to help design that clinical program as the chief medical officer. I made the transition. Thanks, Adam. And Stu, we'll hand it over to you now and just walk us through your journey and, and how you got to where you are now. Thanks, Rahul. And, and also, thank you for having me. My story is, I guess, it follows, again, a sort of a typical story, I guess. I'm trained as a chemist. Uh, my PhD is in chemistry from Caltech many, many years ago. I knew from very early age, really, I'd say early high school, that I wanted to be a scientist and that chemistry really resonated with me. Through my PhD, I felt that that was excellent training, but was really searching on how to focus my core strengths and interests into a way to help others directly. I followed my PhD with a postdoc in enzymology at Harvard Medical School, and that's where really things began to click on where I felt my core strengths lay, and also it, it provided insight on where I could use my background and training to do exactly that, to help patients most directly. That was an industry path. I considered academics as well, but really the industry path for me felt like I would be able to see hopefully, the fruits of my labors more directly into patients. Upon finishing my postdoc, I started a stint at Hoffman LaRoche down in Nutley, New Jersey, working in metabolic diseases. That was a fascinating area and tremendous science. But I felt for a number of reasons that was done in New Jersey. I wanted to be back into the Boston area. So after a couple of years, I moved back to the Boston area and joined Astra, which soon became AstraZeneca. And I was working in anti-infectives in that capacity. 
That term lasted a total of 15 years, really dedicated to understanding and developing and moving compounds towards the clinic for serious infections. That really resonated with me as a, as a disease area. I could see the impact of effectively a cure of disease in that space. So that always resonated with me. I felt that it was great science, but that's a very challenging, challenging field. It was very difficult to get molecules into the clinic given all the hurdles that antibacterial space throws at you. It's very difficult science. So after 15 years and having a, a very rewarding career at AstraZeneca, I decided to make a move. I did a bit of a, uh, I call it an industrial sabbatical of sorts. I joined the Broad Institute and spent about two and a half years there in their drug discovery effort. That gave me a chance to really see and observe firsthand the broad depth of science and breadth and depth that happens at the Broad. I felt like I was getting a front row seat in just all aspects of cutting edge science. In again, in an academic setting, that that was a real nice counterbalance to that long-term in industry where I was able to really dig into the science. But towards the end of that time, I realized again, where I wanted to really reside was in a small biotech. And the opportunity to join C4 emerged and I jumped at it. I had reservations. This was a novel technology and it was not clear in 2016 whether this was going to work beyond an academic lab setting at all. And so many questions were at the front of us when we started at C4, and I really joined at the beginning. And so questions about, can you use this technology against different target classes? Can you make compounds that can go in vivo and make a difference in vivo models? And more importantly, can you make them into drugs? Were all the burning questions that we started with and obviously, the journey that we've taken at C4 and, and others in this field have shown that, in fact, all of those hurdles that seem so large in 2016 clearly can be surmounted and surmounted at scale. So it's been just a, a fantastic ride. Awesome. Wonderful. Uh, you know, obviously a very storied career and obviously one that has uh, hopefully more to give to the domain. One question I have for you both before we get into the, sort of the heart of the discussion is one of the key parts of your background that I've observed is that you both either oscillated or spent time in both the academic arena as well as the industrial world of the life sciences industry. Any chance you could either share some guidance for those who are earlier in their career thinking about going from academia to biotech? You know, I don't know that I necessarily have guidance when to do it, why to do it. I think the valuable thing from my perspective is that for me, I've never looked back because I've truly enjoyed what I've done most aspects since I made the transition. I feel like I have the opportunity to work on problems that I think are interesting, potentially make drugs that will help people, work with interesting people. And I actually think a major difference for me in my approach is in, in, in drug development, I feel pretty deeply that it's my responsibility, the responsibility of the team to figure out the truth of what the molecule does and put that forward. And I like that aspect of it as opposed to some something that I might've struggled with in academia where you're pushing a story uh, at times and developing that, that story more than you are finding out what your molecule does in a very concrete way. For me, it just suits me better. So I've liked what I do better. I found it more enjoyable, less stressful. I've liked the way that my career has progressed better. That's not the case for everyone. For me, it was uh, anxiety provoking to make the switch, but once I did it, I never looked back. Yeah, I have a similar perspective. I'll address some things that I had concerns throughout my career, and certainly early on. Can you do really good science in industry? And the answer to that is very clearly yes. And so that was a concern that really haunted me when I was training in the best facilities in the world. 
would I have to sacrifice society? I can say now, you know, 25 years on, that certainly was not the case. But I think what it, what Adam was getting at resonates with me. It's a deeply personal decision which path you take, and they are very different. In the academic world, it's about really understanding fundamental principles and understanding that science, and that's the joy of it, I think. That's certainly what I enjoyed during my time, both as a grad student, postdoc, and then again in my term at the Broad. In industry, I think the mission is to do great science, but to make sure that that science moves to patients. So you have to make decisions along the way that often run counter to things that my academic side of me would say, wow, that would be a fascinating question to answer. But we don't have time. We don't have the resources. That's going to have to be left for others to answer because we need to move this molecule. We need to identify compounds that can get into people because that's the pressing question of the day. And I that resonates deeply with me. And so I don't mind that sacrifice. But others, I've found, have trouble with that, and they're better positioned in the academic world. I think these two worlds need to coexist. I think they do coexist in the best world, and they balance each other. So that's what I feel over my career. I've seen the benefits of both. And then it's a personal question. Where do you feel most comfortable? That's how I've dealt with it. When I first started at Novartis, I, I was speaking with someone who, and I said, yeah, but thinking about industry, does it bother you that you might be working on something for a while, and then someone up on high will say, you're not working on this anymore. You're going to work on something else. And, and his response was, it actually doesn't bother me at all because what they're doing is saying is I'm going to put you on something that's going to be impactful rather than this thing that's not impactful. And I think that there's an important truth in there. It's not perfect. What drives industry is different than what drives academics. But in order to be successful in industry, you have to make drugs that help people. And if that's your goal, I think it's a good one. Yeah, wonderful. So, you know, with that, I really appreciate the the context. I know um, a measurable portion of our listeners are sort of earlier in their career and can very much benefit from that sort of salient advice. So, you know, when you think about the space that you all work in today in terms of protein degradation and leveraging small molecules for that purpose, obviously it's one that's quite exciting and has a lot of promise. Would love to hear some of your perspectives on the space as well as maybe some of the history that perhaps has led up to the founding and execution that C4 is pursuing. Sure. So I, I can I can feel some of that since I, I sort of have lived it in real time. But, but the first thing I'll say is I feel we're only starting in this field. It's so young and yet it moves so quickly that many of the questions you begin to ask are being answered in the literature on it really a weekly or even almost daily basis. It's It's so exciting to be in an emerging technology of this type and to be able to actually live it in real time. It's a fascinating and unique period for drug discovery and certainly degraders themselves. But actually, I think the roots of this technology go back many decades. It's about 20 years old when, in fact, this idea was cooked up uh, literally in an academic lab, two of them to be exact, Ray Deshaies and Craig Cruz, conceived of this concept. And again, I think that speaks to the value of having innovation centers that test ideas that most places would never have considered as being a viable path forward. But they conceived the concept, and to be fair, those molecules were not at all drug-like, but they proved the concept, and that concept evolved over the remaining couple of, let's say, 10 to 15 years with continuous work in those labs to really develop it. It was really in the, I would say, the mid-2010s where this field began to mature and start to take root. Arvinus is a company that's a, a peer company to us. They were the first out there as an industrial effort to really adopt this and try to go after it with drug discovery. We followed soon after, as have others in this space, when it became clear that you can use 
multiple different ligases, E3 ligases, to do this work, and different chemical matter began to emerge that has much more promising chemical drug-like properties. When that became clear, I think we've started to see the first wave of which we are part of that investment in drug discovery. And it was really the identification of certain E3 ligases with some chemical matter could then begin to demonstrate on a scale across the academic world and in, inside companies that you can degrade a variety of targets, maybe a whole host of them at will by design. And it's not easy work, but it certainly gives you tremendous power to go after targets in a way that you cannot, could not have conceived of doing that using small molecule inhibitors. And in the cases where you are up against a small molecule inhibitors, in many cases, you can find benefits above and beyond that inhibitor uh, modality. And what are some of those benefits? So if you weigh the challenges, but also the predictability that comes with small molecule drug development, what's your perspective on both pros and cons, but also what else is out there? So let me just put a little bit of context here. And this is going to sound hyperbolic, but I think it's really true. The roots of small molecule drugs go back to the early 1900s, you know, where it was, you know, Paul Ehrlich, Magic Bullet, binding drives pharmacology. That has been the guiding principle for the last hundred and odd years. And so when you're doing an inhibitor, you're looking for a molecule that will bind potently to a target of interest and its active site generally to block its function. And that whole pharmacology is dependent on two things, binding potency and exposure. You know, you can actually extend that to antibodies as well. That's how you drive pharmacology. With the graders, we're doing something fundamentally different. What you're doing is you're harnessing a natural system inside every cell that's responsible for recycling proteins. As they get older, there's a whole system, about 5% of your human genome is dedicated to the process of recycling with the ribosome made. And essentially, that recycling method is what we now leverage by harnessing a portion of that called the E3 ligases, which they inspect various target proteins and then tag them with ubiquitin. Once you tag a protein with ubiquitin in a certain way, it's targeted for destruction. Our molecules in the field here harnesses two things, an attraction to the target molecule of choice and a specific E3 ligase. And in so doing, it tricks the E3 ligase into thinking that new target protein is a native substrate for it. The key here is an E3 ligase is an enzyme. And what we're doing is we're activating that enzyme to take down target. What that means for degraders is these molecules are by their very nature catalytic. They don't rely on binding affinity per se. You must bind to the target at some affinity, but it can be very weak. In the cases, it can be actually exceptionally weak and yet still active when you are able to get that E3 ligase to treat it like a native substrate and tag it quickly. If you have it just right, that E3 ligase can, can very quickly, in conjunction with your degrader, turn over and process many, many copies of a target protein. So you're no longer talking about a one-to-one -one interaction where you have high concentration of drug or whatever concentration above the binding affinity. You're now talking about something that is time-dependent and highly active for good degraders. You can process many, many copies of a target protein very, very quickly. And so what happens then is many of the rules that we have set up over these last hundred years, now you have to keep a very open mind. And the point I was making about it being hyperbolic I think we're now seeing a very different drug modality that's turning many of the rules that we come to rely on for, for small molecule inhibitors on their head. Binding affinity may be important, not necessarily important. Long exposure, 
Not critical if you have a fast degrader because it's all about having enough degrader in there to get rid of the amount of target you want in the time that you need to expose. And after that, the only way the cell recovers is to resynthesize that protein, which doesn't require or have any dependence on degrader concentrations. These are, these are, are details. The point is we're now really at the cusp of inventing a brand new drug modality that has fundamentally different rules than we've come to learn and define for small molecules. Tremendously fascinating, very challenging. Excellent. Thank you, Stu. Now, with that great background, Adam, we'd love to learn more about the work being done at C4 and where things stand in the pipeline. Yeah, so this is really nice. If you asked me this four months ago, I would have said, I can't really tell you anything. It's not publicly disclosed yet. But having gone through the IPO process and disclosed our pipeline, there's actually things we can discuss. You know, really the meat of my job is to develop our internal pipeline, to take the molecules that C4 owns and controls and, and put them into the clinic and develop them. We have four molecules in our lead pipeline that we aim to have them all into the clinic by next year, by 2022. Our lead program, we recently submitted the IND and now have clearance, have the study may proceed in hand from FDA and hope to pay those patients in the first half of this year. That program um, we'll often refer to as our Icaros program, or the targets are IKZF1 and 3. These are really the canonical targets of the image molecules. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, it's fair to think of this molecule as a next generation image. And we're excited to put it into the clinic, given what the preclinical data has shown, in the hopes that uh, we can improve on activity of the molecules that are currently in the space and really develop transformative cares to patients with multiple myeloma or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The first in human study includes patients with multiple myeloma. It also includes patients with NHL. And we're excited to start soon. It's really interesting. Given sort of the progress so far, it's not like the company's been around for a dozen plus years. It's a pretty young organization. Curious if either of you have any insights to share around that trajectory from starting with a scientific concept or a principle to then going to sort of the clinic. Any interesting insights to share there? I'd say that the first thing that strikes me is that this ride has been both terrifying and exhilarating in equal measure. I deeply value the experience I had in the big pharma realm. It gave me a tremendous education and exposure to the infrastructure required and many cautionary tales about how you can land into pitfalls. And without that kind of background, I think it would have been challenging to be as brave as we needed to be early on in C4's history and uh, at the very early days. I think before joining C4, I used to worry, geez, am I going to have questions about the decisions I make and will I have second thoughts? The reality is for the first year and a half or more when we were really building the platform that we now are leveraging, we were making decisions on Monday morning that by Monday afternoon, were already three decisions deep. And so by the time you got to Friday, the decisions you made on Monday were probably 15 generations behind the tree that you were now sitting on. And there was just no time for regrets or decisions. In fact, I realized pretty quickly on, I'm not going to know the outcome of these decisions for a good three or four years. And as a result, it's actually, I found that quite freeing because you didn't have to worry about, did I make a wrong decision? It was so far in the future. You just have to make the decision that makes sense to you at that time. With the background I had, I felt confident. I knew what could go wrong. So I was making a decision to avoid catastrophic failure. 
And I had a vision for where we wanted to be. And, and somewhere in between were all the decisions and actions. So I found it exciting. And, but yet, you know, if you stop to think at any given time, you could lose yourself in that period. That's for sure. That's really interesting. You know, I feel like most don't necessarily realize the pace at which you have to operate in an emerging company. One of the things I've observed is that many folks who come from large pharma or folks at large pharma tend to be among the first folks selected to say, start a biotech or help build, you know, an early stage company. Do you feel like they're a good fit given that juxtaposition of fast decision-making, quick iteration versus longer timelines in a bigger institution? You know, I think, again, that's very much up to the individual. I don't think I would have been ready for this role had I left AZ earlier. But by the time I had spent the time at both Hoffman Roche and at AZ, I felt that in many dimensions, I had seen the learning curve. That's not to say I couldn't have had a very successful career and gone further in AstraZeneca. But for me, much of the things that I found most exciting about drug discovery in AstraZeneca, I kind of knew the rules there. And it wasn't much more for me. It was, it was a question, do I go back and relearn that again in a different setting? So I was ready for something very different. And I think if you're in that mindset, then a biotech environment is exactly the tonic for that. However, if this kind of pace or not having the infrastructure or trying to figure out what the infrastructure you need and where you're going to find it is something that doesn't appeal to you or creates excessive jitters, then I I think there's plenty of room and space for everyone on this planet. And it depends on what you really resonate with. I know folks that are continuing to be very happy in big pharma, and they are good at that. For me, it was the right time and the right place for me to move. I think it very much comes down to the individuals. And it's very hard to predict until you're in it. You know, for me, I think the thing that I miss most is is pretty close to the thing that makes me happiest that I've transitioned to biotech in some ways, right? So at Novartis, if I had a question, let's say I had a clinical question, there were sort of 11 world-class oncologists within, you know, 30 feet of me. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that was wonderful, right? I could find a breast oncologist or a myeloma oncologist and ask them the question that I didn't have the expertise to answer that they did. I don't have that anymore. I can reach out and find it someplace else usually, but that takes time, which really means that I have to think and read and make decisions. I like that. And I think that the cost of having 12 world-class oncologists within 30 feet of you is that all of those experts are also in on the decisions, right? I think the the single biggest difference is what Stu alluded to earlier. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. Go, right? That's how we function. As opposed to what I've seen in big pharma, which is here's the problem. Here's a solution. Let's talk about it. And let's talk about it with some more people. And then let's make a decision. They're both valuable. They both work for that size organization, but um, different people like it different ways. That's very interesting. So many leaders talk about fast decision making being critical to increasing velocity but I think few are actually able to pull it off. And I'd love to hear perhaps some tactical advice that you had on this. So let's say you're making a decision on Monday, Stu, as you were mentioning, and then you're 15 iterations deep on that decision on Friday. What is happening between Monday and Friday? Is it a bunch of meetings? How were you able to iterate so quickly and make decisions? You know, for me, it's not too complicated. That doesn't mean it's not challenging. I think it's all about assessing what are the challenges that you're facing? Often, particularly early on, it were technical challenges deeply rooted in the science. And so you had questions about how are we going to address these scientific questions? How are we going to build assays that are going to tell us what we need to see on how degrader works? That's a deeply technical question. 
And it's really about asking the question the right way. If we ask, how can I use an inhibitor binding assay to tell me what a degrader does? Well, that's going to get you in some trouble. If you ask, how can I think about different assay technologies that are going to tell me how well a degrader degrades proteins? That's a more meaningful and helpful uh, approach. I give you these two case studies because essentially those are the kind of questions you're facing. And I think more than anything, it's making sure, am I asking the right questions? Am I really keeping open-mindedness to the problems at hand rather than being overwhelmed by the problems and then using sort of past history to step in? And that is not an easy balance. And I think it was very dynamic at the time when we were very much in the build phase. It was stop. Let's make sure we understand what questions we really want to answer down the line and today. And by creating you know, that forum for discussion, these decisions weren't really that hard in their detail. But you were beginning to build both the technical vision as well as the practical applications in concert. Where we started to diverge from that is where you started to see the team begin to get troubled and more discussion. And that was more of a signal to say, let's redefine the questions. And that's how we navigated those early days. It was really super exhilarating, but again, challenging because you, you could get lost in questions that really didn't apply. And you had to reel yourself back in before you got too deep on that, answering those questions. Well, you know, I think obviously beyond uh, the progress of the pipeline and uh, some of the interesting learnings uh, in terms of both decision-making and recruiting, uh, one of the things uh, that C4 has recently undergone is the process of transition from being a private company to a public one. So would love to hear a little bit of the inside story around how the organization has changed and evolved as it's gone from being both an R&D phase company to a clinical one, but then second also from a private to a public one. I'll speak for discovery. It's my hope that we actually don't change very much. What I would like the, the discovery organization to feel is, look, we are in a hot space. And no matter whether we were private or we're public, that is an important thing for the organization. No question. And we're better capitalized and we have the ability to raise money to make sure we keep doing the work we're doing. That's something that should give people comfort so that they can focus again on what is their core mission? And that core mission is, are we remaining leaders in this space and working to push the frontiers of the science? My biggest concern is changes and transitions of the company that we're going through, these major milestones, and they are no doubt major milestones. They don't fundamentally change the discovery organization's mindset, their excitement, and the challenge level. So it's my job to make sure that we translate this transition in terms of Yes, this is a natural transition for the company, but discovery needs to remain vibrant, focused, and continually elevate our game as if it were 2016 all over again. And that is my job. So I'm hoping there I see no change and that people stay totally excited about where they were as if we were a private company working to try to build very tall buildings in a very short period of time. You know, it's funny, from my perspective, I joined before there was a clinical group. So I joined because I saw Stu and his team and folks I met and said, man, these guys are smart. Man, these guys are enthusiastic. Man, are they driven by the science and they're good scientists. And man, do I need to build a clinical group that has a little bit more gray hair and that goes at a very different pace and is governed a lot more by regulation. It's just the way it is. We're driven by science. But man, you got to do it right the first time. Your first in human ever for the company phase one trial is not the time to be learning how to do this. I think that's an important transition. 
we work with the discovery group all the time and I agree with two. I hope the flavor of the discovery group does not change from, from what it was when I joined. Um, but there's a very different feel in clinical development. You really have to be motivated by different things. The pace is sort of both faster and slower at the same time, get things done, but you're building for data you're going to accrue over years. And it's been challenging, but it's been interesting putting the team together, watching it grow. You know, it's funny. I think when I've talked to people who've done it before, they would say, you know, the team, you're going to have challenges along the way. There are going to be stresses. You'll do it successfully. And then you'll all love each other. And when I was in it, I would say, that's not how it's going to work. Like, come on. And then that's sort of how it does work. You're smart, you're motivated, you're experienced, you learn to work together, you get it done, and then everyone feels good. The other thing that I'll say about these milestones is every time we've hit a major one, the IPO is a really good example. Incredibly important for the company. Company doesn't exist without the money to run it. And incredibly proud and enthusiastic and exciting to be part of it. And then the next day, you sort of say, okay, let's go do some work. Because truly what it is that I, I guess our team is now trying to do in the clinical group is treat patients. And the success of the IPO enables that, but really other than that, didn't forward that mission uh, necessary. And now we have to go complete the mission. So you both have hinted at various points the importance of culture to C4's success. How have you had to adapt in the midst of the pandemic? And any any learnings that you would like to share around, you know, this has worked really well for us to improve and, and maintain that culture that, that has been so critical to your success? Yeah, I would say, look, I think we're all experiencing this pandemic in very deep and profound ways. And C4 is no different. Uh, let's put it this way. I don't want a bigger stress test than this one. <laughs> this has rocked us, has rocked us all. I would say two things. One, the discovery organization had the benefit of building as individuals in person. We realize that now. We knew it at the time, but you don't really realize the value until it's gone. But having had that experience and having people that have worked together and know each other, in many ways, this isolation has drawn people together to work effectively under almost any circumstance. And so like many, probably most of the biotechs in this sphere have had to identify new ways and have new reliances on places doing work that you would normally do yourself, metering very carefully what is critical path work that you're going to do in your own labs, and trying to make sure that you have the safety of your people always top of mind. We've taken that mindset, and that has resonated and actually in some ways strengthened our culture and saying, look, this is a company that we care about each other, and we care about what we're doing. So how can we do both of those things in under the most difficult of circumstances. We've done that now. I think we look back in 2020, it's not a year I want to repeat, but what I can say is when we reflect back, this is a year where just like, again, in the early days where we were trying to prove ourselves, we've proved ourselves in a different dimension, but we come out much stronger in the end. I won't say it's easy and it's not, this is unfinished business. We do have difficulties in the culture, keeping people connected to an electronic world. This is hard. But I do see that the organization has rallied and they continue to rally. And I take great strength from that personally. Two things. First is you probably can hear me sitting in my bedroom with a large number of small children screaming behind me. So that's part of what we're talking about. But, you know, actually, my group didn't have one of the advantages that Stu's did. We didn't grow together. In fact, I don't think I've met face to face more than half the people in my organization. 
So it's not impossible, but I think it it just magnifies the challenges, right? I think more so than in, say, big pharma, in biotech, you have to get along with the people you work with and you have to function as a team. And drama or pot stirring or other behaviors like that really can affect the team's performance in a very major way. And more importantly than that, make people not like their job, right? And we're all here to enjoy what we're doing as much as we believe in the goal. And so I really think it's just taking careful attention to make sure that we have a team that works together respectfully in a way they enjoy remotely. It's really hard. It's not perfect. I don't want people listening to this and say he's done such a good job doing that. There have been bumps in a very real way. We're looking forward to getting together. I think that a lot of the things that you can iron out in person, whether it's having a cup of coffee for two minutes or just passing each other in the hallway or reading each other's body language or absent, it has a really big effect. And I think you have to be very mindful of it, manage it actively, and make sure that folks are enjoying what they do, even though they're staring at their screen for eight hours a day. Yeah, I think you, know, you guys acknowledging those bumps is a testament to your leadership. Uh, on that note, just want to thank both of you for sharing the impressive C4 therapeutic story. And thank you to you and your colleagues for the important work that you all are pursuing. It's great to have you on. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.